Welcome back to our series, Healing a Broken World, Betty Souter in China, 1946. Today, it's Thursday, 23rd of March, 1946, and we're going to enjoy a special bonus episode. But it's not a letter from Betty. You see, we've managed to get our hands on a letter written by the young woman who would become Bet's UNRWA roommate fellow adventurer and, as things would turn out, friend for life. Yep, that's right. Today we share a letter written by Marjorie Block to her family and friends. It provides a different and colourful description of her arrival in China, of meeting Bet, and of the long journey from Shanghai to Nanchang in Chengxi province. In particular, we get an entertaining eyewitness account of Bet's two nights in the bug-infested Garden Hotel in Qucheng. I hope you enjoy Marge's story. Miss Marjorie Block, care of Anra China Office, 370 North Suchow Road, Shanghai, China. Hello everybody, this is going to be a circular on my movements since I last wrote. Some of it may be a duplication, but never mind. Did I tell you of our stay in Hong Kong? We had 10 glorious days there, and so much has happened since that it is hard to remember the sequence of events. Hong Kong was our first introduction to China, and as such, we liked it, but it was definitely not the real thing. To be sure, We saw junks and sampans sailing out of the harbour to the fishing grounds, but there was also a decided British atmosphere about the whole place, giving it an air of stability not comparable with the Chinese way of living. Hundreds of uniforms, RAF, Royal Navy, Marines, Commandos, Scotch Tartans, some fine-looking Indian regiments, Chinese paratroopers, and also waifs, wrens, fannies, and Ensa concert party girls. We were well looked after by the Navy, the RAF, and our friends from the ship returning to Hong Kong, together with their Chinese acquaintances. We never got to bed any night before midnight while we were there. Dinner and dancing was the routine every night. We went to church on Sunday night before we left, just for a rest. Left Hong Kong in the early morning of 3rd April in a US Navy flying boat, outward bound along the China coast to Shanghai. It was a glorious morning. We raced across the harbour in a USN speedboat, with the sun shining over the hills of Hong Kong Island onto the harbour, on all the warships lying at anchor, and on the inevitable junks and sampans bucking past in our wash. We transferred to the flying boat off Kai Tak Aerodrome. From our mooring place near the tender, we could see the silver DC-5s of the Chinese National Airways lined up on the tarmac. Then our engines turned over, and after a long run down the harbour, ploughing through water way up to the cabin windows, we finally lifted clear and gradually gained height for a last look at Hong Kong. Then we relaxed, and after about two hours flying time, they called us into the galley for a meal, hot chicken and beans on toast, with coffee. They had a small two-plate electric stove, a table and a bench for four, and shelves stocked with tins of food. Our cook actually apologised for the food, said he wasn't the regular cook, 
just one of the gunners. It took us five and a half hours to do the trip. It was smooth and very comfortable, but hot. The coastline gradually unfolded beneath us, brown hills and grey-green paddy fields terraced down the valleys and the blue China Sea washing the shores. Then, about an hour before we were due to land, we noticed the water below us becoming a dirty yellowish-brown. Then we swung in over the Yangtze Kiang River across land all checkered in dark and light green squares, with not a square inch wasted, except, of course, for innumerable mounds scattered all through the fields. They bury their dead in the family pastures and plough closer around the mounds every year. It seemed to me that there were just as many people planted as there were crops. The road and canals dicing the land make it resemble porridge after you have cut it into squares and let the milk cool it off. We landed not in the porridge, but in the Wangpu River, which slightly resembled soup. You cannot see an inch down into the water. It is liquid mud, the soil of China washing down the great rivers into the ocean. And then Shanghai, an amazing place. I guess the most cosmopolitan city in the world. We had Chinese dinners, we attended cocktail parties on board British battleships anchored off the Bund. We danced at American hotels, we dined at the Australian Legation, ate at the Indian Club, spent Easter in the traditional Russian fashion with vodka, went sightseeing in French town and curio-chasing down Nankin Road. Our hotel was five miles out of town in Bubbling Well Road, and there really was a bubbling well. Also, we worked. At least my companion Audrey Owen did. She was assigned to a position in the Shanghai headquarters. While I was given a field assignment to Nancheng, capital of Jiangxi province, my feelings about it were very mixed. From what I could gather, there were no other Europeans in the city. We would be a party of not more than a dozen people, and who knows how much we would get on one another's nerves after a while. There was no entertainment in the town, no pictures, no theatres, and the trip to Nancheng was a solid piece of pioneering. 550 miles up the Yangtze in a Chinese riverboat, and then a road trip of 120 miles along an old railroad bed from which the Japs had removed the rails. However, I had come to China to work with UNRWA, so I thought I might as well serve my time out in the provinces and see more of the country than stay in such an artificial city as Shanghai. So after three weeks of waiting round on transport, I was finally given exactly two hours notice to pack and be cleared out from HQ. It is exactly like the Air Force, but I made it, along with my fellow traveller-to-be, another Australian lass, Betty Souter. She is a Sydney girl, a lawyer, was married three weeks before her husband sailed to Malaya, never returned. She is quite young and wonderful company. Bill Dobson, an Australian war correspondent whom I met in Shanghai, came around with the Australian legation car, driven by a little wrinkled old Chinese boy, whom he addresses as Jeeves, drove us down to the Bund, where we were to embark on this Chinese river steamer. Golly, but it was good to be sitting there in the car with two other Australians, and the Australian flag fluttering from the standard. That, and passing the British warships anchored in midstream, made me feel homesick, and I began to wonder again whether it was wise to leave this stability for an unknown and rather inaccessible region of the interior of China. However, it was no use changing ships in midstream. So we duly hired our coolies, counted and checked the pieces of luggage onto a sampan, 
then boarded another sampan and bucked up and down on the Wangpu mud for 10 minutes en route to our ship anchored out in midstream. There is not nearly enough wharf area in Shanghai to accommodate all of the shipping, and for 10 miles down from the Bund, there was a solid line of ships anchored in midstream, as well as those tied up at the wharves. All the time, we were wondering which ship was ours, how big it was, and above all, how clean it was. We finally scrambled aboard her, an 800-tonner, the SS Qiangning. We're pleasantly surprised. At least it wasn't too bad, although I had a beautiful cold the whole trip and couldn't smell a thing. Betty kept giving me the lurid details, especially when we were in the Lala. The atmosphere there was apparently very thick. The bath was absolutely unusable. We washed in our cabin, using the basins provided by the Shanghai office, and boiled water from our thermos, which we had fortunately filled before leaving. Well now, let's go out on deck for some fresh air, and a last look at Shanghai. Betty and I made for the rail and waved our right arms off at all the boys on board the American and British ships. I suppose they wondered what the Dickens two white women were doing on a Chinese boat surrounded by hundreds of Chinese passengers. And then we passed HMS Swiftshore, my Lord Admiral Bruce Fraser's flagship. I had met him the previous evening along with several of the ship's officers, and what a thrill it was. Passing that proud ship with the officers of the watch dressed in their immaculate tropical whites, and then the nicest thing of them all. Some of them recognised me. By this time, I was flailing like a windmill, but they, true to the stern British naval tradition, could do nothing more than salute stiffly at frequent intervals and ply their telescopes. Nevertheless, I knew they were wishing us the best of luck and all that. The American boys on board battleships, loaded with guns and radar, and Liberty ships flying nothing more than the week's washing, were much less formal, and waved and whistled us in the traditional American fashion, and we liked that too. And so we slipped down the Wangpu to the Yangtze Kiang, a name I used to love to roll off my tongue at geography lessons in school, and entered that huge river. We travelled close in on the left bank and could scarcely see the other across in the distance. And so down to the dining room for the evening meal, the food on board was all Chinese, and we ate with chopsticks. It wasn't too bad, but bamboo shoots, rice, boiled cabbage, and stewed octopus isn't exactly my idea of breakfast. However, we had taken care to equip ourselves well in Shanghai and had four cases of American 10-in-1 rations. It is absolutely unbelievable the things they pack into those boxes. There are three meals for five persons for two days, which adds up to 30 meals, right? Right. Betty and I sat on the bunk. After carrying out a thorough search for bugs and sprinkling DDT liberally around, I opened one carton. It was just like Christmas. They have just everything imaginable. Porridge, milk, coffee, plum puddings, tinned ham and eggs, beans, peas, custard, sugar, salt, halazone tablets, aspirins, chocolate, biscuits, butter, jam, tin openers, tin pork with apple sauce, cigarettes, soap which lathers in salt water. In fact, everything, including even a roll of toilet paper. Speaking of toilet paper reminds me of the funniest thing on board that ship. As I said before, she was fairly clean and comfortable, but we were on the saloon deck and down below in the steerage, things were not so good. 
and right aft, in the stern of the vessel and in full view of everyone on the after deck, were erected two wooden privies, something like horse boxes. The Chinese boys would just go in, close the half door, and sit there placidly reflecting on the strange customs of the two foreigners skipping madly on the deck to offset the fattening properties of Chinese meals. The first night, we anchored after dusk, the rumour being that communists were likely to fire on us further upstream. However, we slept soundly. Betty and our other cabin mate, an American woman doctor, on the two bunks, and myself on a stretcher and bedroll I had obtained in Shanghai. And was I glad of that bedroll, but more on that later. Next day, we covered quite a distance and didn't drop anchor that night. At least not until midnight, when I awoke with that same feeling you get on a troop train when it pulls into a station in the night. You know the rattling of cans, the cries of the porters, and the lights shining in the windows. I crawled out of my stretcher and looked out the cabin window, but there was nothing much to become absorbed in at that time of night. A few coolies unloading sacks of rice. So I fell back on the stretcher and was almost asleep when there came a knocking at the door, opened it up, and there were about ten Chinese soldiers armed to the teeth with pistols and tommy guns. They wanted to see our tickets, the cabin boy told us. So we all had to dive over the side of the bunks and into suitcases and bags and Lord knows what else in search of the damn things. Meanwhile, one of the soldiers managed to insert himself into the cabin and was prodding our cartons of 10-in-1 rations and Coca-Cola, wanting to know what was in them. After a while, more prodding and kicking, he finally left us, along with the rest of the Chinese army. Next morning, we inquired what it was all about. It appears that we had tied up at historical Nanking, and the soldiers had orders to search the vessel for arms and ammunition, which might be run up the river. That was why they were so curious about our cartons. After a fast trip of three days, we eventually reached our port of disembarkation, Qiang, at 7pm. It was dark and we were worried about getting our luggage ashore without having some coolie abstract some of it. However, a Chinese general on board ordered his personal troop of soldiery to stand guard over the coolies, which was a good thing. And there we were, all ready to go ashore, when who should arrive but the director of the regional office for which we were bound. One Bill Duncan, ex-group captain RAAF, and one Keith Kestevin, ex-major AIF, tank corps. He was wearing his butte black beret with the rising sun on the side and good old Australian shorts and safari jacket. Were we happy to see them? And so onto the wharf and up the long wooden ramp to the street where the boys had two jeeps parked. In we climbed, after pushing our way through the inevitable crowd of Chinese that always gathers wherever we go, and drove to our billet for the night, Hua Wan Fan Dian, or Garden Hotel. Here, Betty and I shared a room. It was fairly clean and large, but contained only one bed. So I brought out my bedroll and stretcher once again, and Betty set to work with the DDT on her bed. Then we settled down for a night's rest after inspecting the latrines. But primitive! <laughs> As I said, we settled down to rest. About two hours later, I woke up to see Betty flashing the torch, no electricity after 10.30pm. She was in search of bed bugs, having been bitten once or twice. She caught two, checked all the bedclothes, sprinkled on more DDT, and once again we settled down. Another couple of hours elapsed, 
and I woke up to hear a noise like galloping horses in the room. Switched on the torch. There was no less than ten rats around the place. They were mostly feasting off the wheat husks in which the Coke bottles come packed. Well, there wasn't much one could do about it at that hour of night, so I buttoned myself well into the bedroll and settled down again. What a night. Next day, the boys had some business around the town of Kyukyang, seeing the local magistrate and checking on the UNRWA supplies in the go down on the riverbank. After that, they took us jeeping around 20 miles into the country. Keith is an agricultural expert and wanted to look at the condition of the rice and wheat crops in the area, and Bill was checking upon destruction, refugees, and the various needs of the farmers in the district. We had an interesting trip, but over some of the roughest road on which I have ever travelled, just a rutted truck, and places where the water from the paddy fields seeped down the valleys and crossed the road. It was just red slippery treacherous mud. Keith almost had his arms wrenched off a couple of times, keeping us from sloshing over into the paddy fields. And so, back to the hotel. Chinese food with chopsticks. And then another night in our room. This time, we made sure there were no wheat husks or food of any kind. And Betty even put DDT between the sheets of her bed. Well, round about midnight, it started again. I was lying awake and heard Betty shriek, after which there was a slight scuffle. I thought... My God, there's a Chinaman in the room. But no, Betty again, in quest of bedbugs, had switched on the torch to see a huge rat roosting on the head of her bed. She jumped clear out of bed and the rat went out the window. Then she caught ten bedbugs. Well, that for us was Kyukyang, except that I forgot to mention this province is the centre of the porcelain and ceramic industry in China and shop after shop in the town of Kyukyang had shelves from floor to ceiling stacked with wonderful displays of pottery and rice bowls. Early on the Sunday morning, we were roused out of bed by the boys, had early breakfast, and then were all set for the 120-mile jeep ride to Nancheng, capital of Qiangxi province. It took six hours through beautiful country, porcelain blue hills in the distance capped by white clouds and green paddy fields terracing the valleys down to the plains where the rice paddies gave way to wheat and bean crops. We passed through Chinese villages where the people all rushed out and smiled at us in our two-jeep convoy, shouting Ding Hao and giving us the thumbs up sign. We honked our way through a marching party of 200 Japs who saluted and either grinned or looked apprehensively at us while we all scowled heavily back. We forded rivers in the jeeps where the bridges were out. We were ferried across the flooded Xiaohe by typical Chinese coolies punting their unwieldy craft with great skill and loud chanting. At last we came to the once great city of Nancheng, now three parts ruined by the Japanese, who fought some of their bitterest battles around this area. Didn't see much of the town though, We were all very tired and just wanted to see what sort of a house we were going to live in for the next 3 to 12 months, have a bath if possible, eat and then to bed. Ours is a nice house ours is. UNRWA has taken over one of the mission buildings in the Methodist compound. We drove up to a wooden door in a high brick wall, honked once and the door was opened by a little old Chinaman who bowed at us as we bounced through onto a pretty drive winding through some trees with green lacy foliage, name unknown, and green green grass carpeting the ground. We passed two modern looking buildings, brick, two-storey, 
nestling amongst the trees, and then swung around a curve in the drive for a view of our house. Here we are, at home. It's a two-story brick building. Downstairs we have the offices, lounge room, dining room and kitchen, and upstairs the living quarters. The men on one side of the house, we girls on the other. I guess now is a good time as any to tell you who we have here. The director, Bill Duncan, Australian. Deputy Director, American Claude Brewer, formerly an intelligence officer with the US Navy in the Solomons, Guadalcanal, Bougainville. The Finance and Admin Officer, Canadian Sully Sutherland, ex-Canadian Army and a good scout. The Agricultural Rehabilitation Officer, Keith Kesteven of Sydney, a typical Aussie, can turn his hand to anything, whether it's judging a wheat crop, opening a carton of beer, overhauling a jeep or fixing the soles of my shoes. He doesn't know about that last achievement yet, but he will. The chief accountant, American J.R. Marlowe. Nobody calls him Jasper for short. He insists on the J.R. Has been around the world a bit and has more luggage than any three of us combined. He not only has everything you could possibly think of, he has six of everything, including pipes. They stink. The distribution officer, American Theodore H. Thomas. Don't like much uses the spittoon in this office with even greater gusto and regularly than the Chinese boys. The doc, American Dr. Sanderson, a bit pedantic and touchy at times, but okay. Another doc, American Dr. Rita Adams, gynecologist and obstetrician. She goes out to the medical school here every day and lectures to the Chinese students. She's a southerner, quite nice, but slow on the uptake. We will be talking about something, and five minutes later, she catches up and has her say. Reports officer, Betty Suda, my roommate, and the tops. Welfare officers, two American girls, Marjorie Stauffer and Anne Zaloha. That's all, for the present anyway. We are expecting a dentist and another couple of nurses. Except, of course, for the Chinese staff. I am in charge of the office, have three Chinese boys working with me. They all speak English, type, and also read, speak, and write Chinese fluently. Half the time, they jabber away. It could be a string of gossip about people here for all I know, but they are nice fellows. Don't think they would do that. Mr. Huang, who translates the local newspapers for us, Mr. Han, who handles all the postal side, and David Wu, who does any interpreting needed. For instance, when we want the carpenter to fix something or the rickshaw boy to go somewhere, we call on David. On the house staff, we have the housekeeper, Mrs. Ho, a very sweet little Chinese lady. She comes up to about my waist, has had a very sad life. She was one of a family of six girls and six boys. Five of the boys were killed during the war. Then towards the end of the war, her mother and three or four other close relatives were killed on a Japanese steamer going from Hong Kong to Macau in Portuguese territory. The ship was bombed by American planes, and her husband was shot in the base of the spine and is now a cripple, and her son has arthritis. But in spite of all of that, she still has lots of faith and courage. Gets here about seven o'clock in the morning and usually here till after seven at night. And then there's our Amma. A lovely little Chinese woman with one of the happiest faces I have ever seen. I will take a photo of her someday in her trousers and little white jacket. 
She sleeps in a little room just off ours. We never hear her at all, either going to bed or getting up in the morning. We also have Wong, our number one houseboy, Chow, our number two houseboy, Da Shifu, the cook, Er Shifu, the second cook, Hu, the rickshaw boy, and Wang, the laundry man, and we like them all. They all look so happy and have a wonderful sense of humour. I'm sure they think we are all quite mad at times, but they laugh heartily at most things we do. It's a full day every day, and time passes quickly. We get up in the morning at about half past five or six. It gets light very early, and the birds, golden orioles, make such a noise that you can't help but wake at that hour. Then we go our diverse ways. Betty and I are enthusiastically gardening, with Keith as our shade man and advisor. JR and Sally ride madly around on two bicycles. The others go for a brisk walk down to our front gate and along the riverbank, and there are some as don't do anything. Then a cup of beautiful coffee at 6.30, and breakfast at 7. Tomato juice or fruit, porridge, eggs, toast, butter, marmalade, and more coffee. And so to work. I am always busy. I get into the office between 7.30am and 8, and work solidly until noon. Then, lunch which is usually fish steaks or hamburgers or buffalo steaks, with cabbage and Chinese water spinach or bamboo shoots, stuffed onions, green peas and beans. Then maybe a bit more gardening or sunbaking or just loafing until 2pm and so back to work until 5. Dinner isn't until 7, so we have a bath and relax until the boys come storming around and invite us to the office's mess for a beer. And then to dinner, which consists of soup, roast chicken, goose, pork, etc. And if the cook feels up to it, sweets. Sometimes stewed fruit. Once we had the most luscious lemon meringue. Also, he turns out the most superb bread rolls, equal to anything you could buy in the pastry cooks in Australia. Twice a week, to keep in practice, we have Chinese chow using the good old chopsticks. We are becoming quite expert at it, even to the point of picking up boiled eggs or shoveling in the rice. And of course, the pottery and chinaware we use is really beautiful. Even china spoons and tiny little bowls to rest them in. And then all shapes and sizes of bowls for rice and meat and sauces. And finally, the large dishes they bring the food to the table in. And we have Chinese wine out of tiny little china bowls about the size of a large thimble. The custom is to say goodbye every time a new dish is brought in. In Australian, it means down the hatch, no heel taps, and then you turn your bowl upside down to proof the toast. It's alright with our dinners here when we only have about six dishes. But by golly, when you get to some of these Chinese parties where they have at least 14 dishes and toast in between, then you have to say sui bueng, which means for the ladies, as you wish, but I'd rather not, and the men, sorry, but I can't take it. So far, Bill Duncan and Keith have held their own at every party they have been to, and the Chinese boys never cease to wonder at their prowess. The Chinese people in the town couldn't be nicer to us. We have met most of the local officials and their wives. We had a party of 30 to dinner here the other night, and it really was fun. The best thing you know about Chinese dinners is that as soon as the meal is finished, everybody goes home, or onto a dance. You start eating at about 7 and finish about 9 or 9.30, by which time you really feel like going home for a rest. 
The other night, we were all invited to a party given by the postal commissioner and his wife for their daughter, who was going to America to marry her fiancé, a Chinese student over there. Except for our party, they were all Chinese there. And golly, can they dance. The girls in their long Chinese gowns slit to the knee, and the boys, some in uniform, others in lightweight suits, really looked good dancing to the American records. They held the dance on the roof of the post office, out in the open, and it was lovely. Just to give you some idea of the size of the post office, it's a two-story building covering an area of about half a city block. Well, they cater for the needs of some 13 million people in this province alone, so you can see it has to cover a lot of ground. Also, they have a cable office. We send off cables to Shanghai without any trouble at all. Yesterday, Betty and I went downtown to do some shopping. We wanted to buy some material for bedspreads. Well, the crowds that followed us along the street and even into shops after us. We had the policemen at every corner turning back the crowds, but by the time we reached our next intersection, we would have acquired a retinue of another hundred or so. And in the shops, they crowd so close, they just squash you against the counter. We bought our bedspread material, local cotton cloth with pretty blue and white patterns. It cost 380 Chinese dollars, a Chinese foot, which translated into English is approximately one and tuppence for 13 and a half inches. It worked out to about $7,000 or 21 shillings. A thousand Chinese dollars are equal to approximately three shillings Australian. The currency question is absolutely fantastic. It's like playing with Monopoly money. Doesn't seem real to us. Then we went down to the Silversmith Street. The shops there are fascinating. Bought a silver dress pin a bangle and a couple of large silver hair clasps for about 21 shillings, the lot. We bargain away there like a couple of old china hands. Whenever we couldn't quite understand their prices, we would produce pencil and paper and write figures down. They all use our figures, so that got over the difficulty quite well, but it was amusing to do our bargaining on paper. They would quote a price, say $6,000, and write it down, whereupon we would take up the brush and write 3,000 underneath. Then they would shake their heads, make it 5,000, holding up five fingers to emphasize their point. Then it was our turn to shake our heads, cluck cluck, and offer them 3,500. After that, if they wouldn't come down, we would just go to walk away, and it usually worked. They would call after us and accept our price. We really have a lot of practice at that sort of thing though. Every night, we have at least half a dozen curio dealers to the house, selling all sorts of little dishes, ornaments, mandarin coats, embroideries with gold thread, and lots of other fascinating trinkets. First of all, we used to do our bargaining through Mrs. Ho, our housekeeper, or any one of the houseboys. They just loved to sit in on the bargaining with us, and would beam and laugh whenever we beat the curio dealers down to our price. We are now learning to use the Chinese terms, and the curio boys, all anxious to better each other, are rapidly learning English. So it is a curious hodgepodge, which always ends up by somebody in the house being a sucker and buying something. Those boys have never gone away empty-handed yet, but it is so hard to resist buying some of the beautiful work they have. The only thing that keeps a rain on most everybody is the thought of customs dues when we take them home. That's all everybody. More next time. Production credits for this episode 
produced and narrated by Warren Henry, voice of Marjorie Block by Rebecca Henry, and the featured tune, a classic of the World War II era, In the Mood by Glenn Miller and his orchestra. (laughs) ¶¶ 